This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, we've got a guest. This is one that you brought in. Who is he? Gary Stringer. Um, when I wrote the ETF book. Corrupt, uh, you've heard about it. Yeah, we I plug it all the time on the show. But I was basically writing a book on ETFs. And most of the big investors I interviewed only use SPY, HYG, you know, pensions, endowments. And a lot of retail stick to those. But there's a group of investors that goes deep in the toolbox. To me, they're, I, they remind me of, you ever go to the video store? And, of course. Uh, like the, the old day, day where you yeah. get the little token and give it For to the For any guy. millennials listening, yeah. just Google it. Maybe watch a YouTube video. <laughs> it, it was a fascinating place. But there'd be a shelf that'd be like um, staff picks. And you'd go in there. Like If you were done all the new releases, you couldn't find anything. Sometimes the staff pick would have a gem in there. A lot of them were good, right? And there'd be movies you might not have heard of, foreign films. This is what ETF strategists are to ETFs. They go deep in the toolbox. All they do is pick ETFs, trade ETFs. And so they're kind of aficionados, and they'll go and they'll span the whole spectrum. So when I did my book, when I got into the section on each asset class and each category, I had a lot of quotes that I would use from ETF strategists because you could throw out any ticker at them, and they'd have an opinion on it. Yeah, it does this, but it's a little expensive, blah, blah, blah. They'd have an instant review for you. So they were really valuable as I was going through each asset class and category to like uh, put a quote in there from one of the users. Uh, I think it really enhanced the reading experience. Hopefully, and Gary was one of the best interviews I had. All right. So, and, how, what are we going to talk to him about? Well, he has over a hundred million in assets, so he has to file a thirteen F. Yeah. So at Stringer Asset Management, that's which right. Is the firm he's the president and CIO of. So we went through his thirteen F and just we we're going to pick some ETFs out that he has and just find out why is he, why does he own them. So I think for for this episode, it's just a good. Um, for any investor out there to sort of go into the mind of a master user, find out why they picked them, both the macro reason and the product reason. This time on Trillions, ETF picks with a master ETF picker. Gary, welcome to Trillions. How did you get into ETFs? We were managing assets uh, at a regional broker dealer and found that the biggest way to, for us to add value was to get the general calls as good as we could. For example, countries, sectors, how do we want to be tilted? And uh, what we found over time is a very efficient way to do that is via ETS versus other investment types. And how long have you been managing, what was it, 100 million? Actually, we're over 730 million now. Oh, hey. I'm just saying they're over 100 because they filed 13F. Yeah. That's not nothing. How did you get into this? Uh, via managing money within a, the regional broker dealer, our firm was eventually purchased and uh, gave us an opportunity to go out independent, as an independent organization. So we took our toolbox, our research, our team with us, and started as an independent asset management firm. But it all started with managing money within a regional broker-dealer for individuals and families. Yeah. Now, just to be clear, though, when we interview advisors, there tend to be buy and hold a couple Vanguard ETFs. You're a whole different situation. You're, you're trying to outperform and do better than a buy and hold portfolio, right? So in a way, you're an ETF picker, in the way people know a stock picker. Right, very similar, or a top-down work we do. Really, our goal is to try to achieve uh, 
uh, better risk-adjusted results, so to help people do better. You know, you've all seen the studies that suggest that individuals capture only a fraction of the market opportunity. We believe a lot of that has to do with behavioral finance and risk. Markets are scary. When markets get volatile, people panic. So if we can develop a strategy that can help people get from here to there with a smoother ride, uh, that risk-managed component is super important to us. It's all based on behavioral finance. And we can do that with ETFs through risk-managed strategies. So we end up with a result that's at least better than the market with 20% less risk. And if you look at that 700 million plus that you guys are managing, how, what portion of that is in ETFs? All of it. All of it. Like I wow. said, man, they're all in. Wow. Okay, so break it down. Like, what? So, how does that? How what does that portfolio look like? We run a series of uh, five strategies, from a global equity all the way down to an income portfolio. Uh, the, the same themes are pervasive. So investors throughout. can kind of pick and choose which one they want to be in, and you can allocate. So if you want sixty percent in something and forty percent in something else, exactly right. Yes. So I thought we would just go through and throw ETFs at him and find out why he owns them. Do it. Okay. And so you guys pulled the 13F. Which 13F is this? Gary had a, a couple he wanted to talk about. We'll go through those. And then I, I asked my team for ones in his 13F that intrigued them, and we'll throw those and in. And this them. is Q4 13F? Q3. Okay. So throw throw one out at him. Let's- All right. Let's, we're going to start basic. And honestly, I'm surprised at this one as a basic pick that an institution would use, which is XLV. It's the Spider Healthcare Sector ETF. Mm-hmm. Um, I would expect it's something a little more obscure from you, Gary. Why XLV? Well, why healthcare? But why this one, which is the popular big liquid one? Yeah, so it's interesting you say that because our previous healthcare plays have been more defined, more specific, things like medical devices, for example. But we did very well in medical devices over a short period of time, and it just got to be expensive. A lot of good news priced in. And at the same time, we saw um, a lot of political risks coming in as you approach an election year. Both sides of the aisle like to beat up on big pharma and all these healthcare companies. Um, and so we tend to shy away from, from it coming into this. But we think so much of that risk is already priced in. In fact, the broad healthcare sector has been lagging, or the price performance, yet it is the top sector in the S&P 500 for revenue growth over the last 12 months. So it's, it's literally the best performing sector from a fundamental basis and one of the worst sectors from a performance basis. So we picked up the broad one because it does have... Uh, Still exposure to some of the areas that we continue to like, but it also has nice exposure to things like pharmaceuticals, uh, which is one of the biggest parts of the, the broad space. We don't want to do a pure play pharma because there is risk associated that with that, especially coming into an election year. So we went broad-based. We went from being very precise to something more broad to be able to capture the broader valuation opportunity. And so how often will you just be in something like XLV versus you know three or four other healthcare picks? So it really depends on what the market's giving us. Uh, at this point, we felt like it was made more sense to be a little bit broader. But usually when we're doing something like that, we will get more specific. Mm-hmm. One of the wraps on healthcare ETS back in the day was that they're too pharma heavy. Mm-hmm. Looks like at one point they were 50%, I think. XLV looks like it's 44%. But you like that it's that, that into pharma. That's part of the... That's, that's a feature, exactly not a bug. Right. Okay. That's exactly right. That's part of our thesis. We wanted to pick up more pharma exposure, but we didn't want to pick up all the pharma. We didn't want it to be just pharma. Mm-hmm. And have you done that before? And like, wh- what other ETFs have you used in the, to concentrate a healthcare bet? So the last one we used was IHI, which is medical devices. Uh, previously, actually, a couple of years ago, we used the pure pharma. Mm-hmm. When we By the way, that made more sense. this IHI is unbelievable. I, I think it's like doubling the S&P. It's mm-hmm. just medical devices. And you were telling me he was on ETFIQ a couple months ago. His reasoning for this was fascinating. Why IHI instead of another sliver or slice of the healthcare space, like, say, biotech, which is where most people go if they want a jacked-up version of healthcare? Yeah. Biotech, though, is a real win. You're, you're either going to crush it or get crushed. 
right? That's really a that's really the way that's going to go. And and for us, that that kind of play doesn't make a lot of sense, especially for our client base. But when we think about medical devices, we have the world's wealthiest country with an aging population, uh, and so people are going to do things like get artificial hips and knees done, right? And uh, all the equipment that goes along with it, really regardless of what the economy is doing, right? And so it's a great fundamentals, and it's much less politically sensitive than, say, pharma. You know, mm. you don't hear about pol- politicians stumping about the price of artificial hips and knees. Which you're going to need. Once isn't it goes that, out. Isn't yeah. that cool? Yeah, yeah. Smart. I like that. Um, and, you know, the Vanguard Healthcare owns 360 healthcare stocks. The spider mm-hmm. one that you have is 61. You want the concentration, though. You don't want it spread out because the Vanguard we call cheap and deep. Mm-hmm. But maybe that would be better long term, whereas XLV better for uh, more pop. Yeah, that was really our thesis because, uh, again, we wanted to pick up the, uh, that, that pharma side, but not, not too much. It's sort of like uh, not too hot, not too cold. Mm-hmm. It was just a nice fit for us for what we were looking for. And some of those things get to be so spread out. So what is the turnover like for you guys? I mean, you, you had this one mm-hmm. bet. Now you've transitioned to something else based on sort of the outlook and the political environment. But like how often is what's the churn like? So on average, in our global equity portfolio, for example, you're going to have more turnover there than in our balance strategies. Uh, since inception over a decade ago, it's averaged about 85% a year. What tends to happen is, and so on average, we end up trading about once a month or so. But that doesn't mean we trade every month. What tends to happen is the market will give us an opportunity, we'll position for that opportunity, and then things will work itself out. And then it's time to reposition. Mm-hmm. All right, ready for the next one, which is sort of the opposite situation, QTEC, QTEC, which is the first trust NASDAQ 100. So it's like the Qs, except it equal weights them. Mm. And so every one of the 100 stocks gets a 1% weighting. Mm-hmm. But a couple things here. First of all, most the Qs is kind of like the ipso facto FANG ETF because it's very heavily weighted in those names. This unfangs it a little bit. Is that Was that your goal here, was to unfang the Qs? Or what are you going after here? Because part of the NASDAQ also has non-tech in it, in it as well. You wanted that exposure? Well, what we wanted in this one, and this is uh, specifically more tech-oriented, tech we like the, the technology sector, uh, but kind of similar to where we talked about why we picked XLV with its uh, broad exposure heavy on pharma, QTech, because it's equally, equally weighted, gets you more uh, semiconductor exposure. So it's something like 40% semis. We didn't want to go 100% semis because, ooh, that's volatile, right? There's a lot of risk there. It's, it's, you're going to win or lose, similar to biotech. But of the technology sector... Uh, semiconductors, we think, is though they rallied pretty strongly last year, they got crushed so badly or so hard in 2018 that the valuations still looked attractive. In fact, when we think the S&P, when we bought this, we thought the S&P was roughly 10% overvalued. Semiconductors were still 10% under their historical mm-hmm. average. So just to get back to average, they had to come up 10% from there. Um, but again, we didn't want to go so heavy in the, se- in the semiconductors that we it's either a flip of a coin, we're going to crush it or get crushed. We want to do it more broad-based, but with a semiconductor emphasis. So one theme that I'm kind of noticing here is that you actually are kind of using ETFs with built-in hedges almost, where it's like you get a concentration, but not all of the concentration that you would get maybe with a different ticker. Well, that's correct. And so there's a theme to that. Um, I think as Warren Buffett once said, we'd rather be generally right than precisely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try to play off that. <laughs> okay. Buffett quotes. Like, got, that's good. Seems like a quote he has on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Are there other ones that you guys are using right now that sort of are part of that same trend? Now you have a dividend one, which a lot of people are into dividend ETFs. They don't get a lot of coverage because they're kind of boring, but they're huge. Yeah, and kicking people, out cash. Yeah. yeah. So DGRO, D-G-R-O, it's the iShares Core Dividend Growth ETF, only charges eight basis points. So very cheap, $10 billion. Why do you like this one? Well, because it's boring. 
actually. Uh, it's one of our themes that we're, we're playing in this environment. Um, it happens to be our macro view from the top down and our bottom up work suggests that we're just going to be grinding it out with respect to uh, capital appreciation of the markets when the market's moving higher. Not a whole lot of pop we don't think left in the markets. Um, and we want a little bit of a quality tilt in case we get a shock. And so this is an inexpensive way to get high-quality companies that consistently grow the dividend. So it's not a high-dividend ETF. It's about consistent uh, dividend growth. So you have a very high-quality companies that can go ahead and continue to appreciate but do a really good job of protecting in volatile markets. And what are the holdings like in there? It uh, looks at the S&P. I mean, it's basically and, – and this is a great point because dividend ETFs all sound the same. But the growers are – you're going to have Microsoft's, Apple's, Johnson & Johnson – looks very much like the S&P. In fact, the yield is only 2.2%, mm-hmm. so, right. and the S&P is 1.7%. So you're not getting much yield. You get that stability. Now, the, the high dividend, they'll go after the high yielders, but you end up in utilities and staples and overweight, mm-hmm. but your yield will, will go up. So you sort of pick your poison. Sounds like you actually want the side benefit of the quality names in here in the low vol. That's exactly right. And if you went for the high dividend, to your point, you might end up with a lot of utilities, which we think are pretty expensive in here. It's a defensive play, um, but they're a little bit rich. Or with some of the high-yielding stuff, you end up with junk companies who just haven't yet cut their dividend. Mm. So you've got to be careful about that. And were, were there ones that buyer beware that you would keep an eye on in that category? There are a couple out there. Basically, anything that has a yield that's too good to be true, we tend to stay away from because those things, it's just a matter of time before a reckoning comes. All right, next one on the list is BAB. Now, I've got to be honest. I thought this was the Build America Bond ETF, which mm-hmm. there's a couple of them. Remember that when Obama came out with those? Um, there, there were three ETFs, but it's called the Invesco Taxable Municipal Bond ETF. Um, so you tell me, did this, did this switch over to become a more traditional muni from a Build America Bond one? It, it, they had to broaden their scope because there are only so many Build America bonds out there. So they broadened their scope to be more taxable munis, which isn't – so muni bonds are traditionally not taxable, right? But then you have the taxable side, which offers higher yield. So it outyields the like treasury, but it's still very high quality. That's why we like it. It's got some duration to it, some interest rate sensitivity to it. So it's a really good uh, equity market hedge, um, but it's not as expensive, meaning it has a higher yield, high quality yield than treasuries do. Yeah, if I'm looking at the holdings here, I do see uh, there are some Build America bonds in here, so it's definitely mm-hmm. still still with those. And that's the thing with Build America bonds, right? Every now and then, this little corner of the muni market will really shine. Yes, um, and it is the duration, though, right? So, what's the duration on on an ETF like this? Meaning, how much interest rate risk are you taking? Yeah, so it's about ten years. So it's not super long. Like you can stretch out even longer if you wanted to. But we're not afraid of taking interest rate risk in this environment. We don't think interest rates move significantly higher from here. Um, but we also don't think you're going to be compensated for going way out on the curve. So, for example, the broad market is about a duration of six years, right? So this has more duration sensitivity to it than the broad market, but it's not super long. So when you look at the muni space, I tend to think people going in for the tax exempt, the tax equivalent yield. The only thing I know about it is like, that's why you do it. But you're not buying this for that. Correct. You're just, you you think the return is there. We think the return is there. The vast majority of our assets are tax sheltered in IRA rollovers and those kinds of things. The tax tax equivalent yield isn't all that important to us, but the yield is and the high quality is. And it, like I mentioned, it it out yields the like duration treasury. So we're getting very high quality fixed income um, with a higher yield, largely because it's not the most liquid space in the world, right? But still, We'll take that. So will that be one an example of something that you'd probably hold on to longer and is, has a little bit less churn, or 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 are you actually actively trading that throughout it, the course of a year? 
that is something that we tend to hold on to a little bit longer. Now, if we if our viewpoint changed and we became concerned, and I hope this happens, I hope that the global economy accelerates and we're thinking, all right, uh, long-term interest rates are going to move higher because of an accelerating economy, that would be great. And we would back off of this. Mm-hmm. But that's not our core thesis. Mm-hmm. So for now, it's a tactical position for us in most of our, our allocations. And how often are you reformulating your thesis? Is that part of your monthly rebalancing? Well, we reformulate in real time. It turns out the, the markets and the economy don't work by a calendar. Uh, we do have... <laughs> Funny how that happens. Yeah. <laughs> we do have formal weekly and, and, and monthly conversations where the, the reports get published, the data gets published, and we review all the data. Um, but we can make changes at any time. So another thing I'm noticing is that you seem to be more U.S.-centric than maybe international. How, how do you mm-hmm. think about that? We are more U.S.-centric, especially these days. Um, a couple of years ago, we were more excited about the foreign markets. Uh, we thought there was a good opportunity there from a valuation basis. And in 2017, for example, the Eurozone was growing at about a 2% uh, GDP growth, which is roughly double what we think their long-term potential is. Now they're struggling for any growth at all, right? And so we think the U.S. grows at about 2%, and the Eurozone struggles to grow at 1%, Japan similarly. Um, so though there's a valuation opportunity over there, potentially it's hard to get excited about anything to unlock that opportunity set. So we would rather be in the U.S. where we get higher quality um, and more stable outcomes, we think. There is an international ETF I'd like to ask you about in your portfolio, DWM, which you don't see a lot. You you assume people have EFA Mm -hmm. or IEFA or something like that. This is the Wisdom Tree International Equity Fund, and it looks like it's dividend-weighted. Correct. Probably Is it screen on dividends too? Yes. And why that? You want international with a little less edge? Well, so... Or you want exactly. the yield? Actually, n- neither that either. So let's think about when we're when we're investing overseas. Uh, different countries have uh, different accounting methodologies, right? So a dollar of earnings in one country might be different than a dollar of earnings in another country. But nothing speaks to earning stability like can you make a consistent dividend? And so that is a core holding for us in our international exposure. It starts with that very consistent dividend. In pairs. other words, the dividend is about making sure you lock into companies that produce earnings. Exactly right. Wow. It's cool stuff, right? I mean, he's blowing my mind. Okay, <laughs> I, I, I actually, uh, out of right field question, is, which is it, Jedi is the right it, metaphor, it, right? Exactly. Yeah. How many ETFs are there in the in the universe? Twenty two hundred. How many of those do you think you've dabbled in, or looked mm. at at least? Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, it's a lot. So, but what we do is we try to approach the theme first, and then try to find an ETF that fits that theme. So mm. over the years, we've touched a lot of them. But like a lot of things, with any growing industry or innovation, there's a lot of stuff that comes out. Most of it, frankly, isn't going to work. Most mm-hmm. of it's not great. So mm-hmm. you end up with a, a, a few things that are really doable. But that theme thing, I mean, it's such a prevalent part of the ETF landscape now mm-hmm. because, I mean, we talk about thematics all the time. They're, they're great talking points. So it's like you must just be like swimming through cream as you like formulate theses and ideas. And then it's just like, oh, well, which flavor do we want? It's like Baskin and Robbins. And over the years, it's been good that there's been so much new product coming out, right? So that gives us, if there's 10 new ETFs that come out, maybe one or two are actually really legit for us. Right. But the more that come out, there's the more opportunity for us to capture some ideas. Okay, so actually, I'm just noticing that there's a couple iShares in here. Mm -hmm. How do you bring something like a BlackRock offering into the portfolio when a lot of these other ones are from maybe smaller issuers? Again, it gets back to the theme. What are we trying to capture? And then who's got the, the right product So do you for even that? think about it from that end? It's sort mm-hmm. of like, what's the product? Right. You, you will that, use small issuers if need be. Yes. Yeah, you have an index IQ product, or you did M&A. Correct. That's pretty small issuer, but they're not tiny. Okay, let me, let me look again. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go to FlexShares Stocks, NFRA. What's that? You got almost 5% in that. Yeah, it's global infrastructure. 
So the idea being here, so we talked about how we're not real excited about uh, an acceleration in global economic growth when we talk about like Europe and things like that. Um, but this is an ETF that is specifically focused on infrastructure, but not capital or, or not uh, economically sensitive. So it's not like the caterpillars of the world, mm. but these are things like global utilities companies, national railroads, cell phone towers, these types of things that if the economy, they're going to continue to generate consistent earnings. I was going to say, regardless. this sounds like your healthcare strategy, which is like, it's, yeah. it's like the hips, the artificial hips of America. That's right. That's right. Canadian Railroad is going to do just fine. Japan Railroad is going to do just fine in, in almost regardless of the economic environment. So if the economy accelerates globally, these companies will lag, the stock prices will lag. But if we're talking about a choppy or even a difficult environment, these guys hold up really well. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Two of your biggest holdings are the iShares MTUM, which is momentum, mm -hmm. and the USMV, which is the minimum volatility. Mm -hmm. you, when you go out and you you know mingle with quants, you know you quickly realize that the iShares will put a little beta into there because they're sector constrained. They don't move right. that much different than the S and P. But then hardcore quants will say, "Well, you're not really capturing any kind of factor here. Uh, maybe a little. It's like diet quant." But you like do you like that beta in there? Is that why you picked them, or is it more about the liquidity or the cost? So there's a couple things to that. So especially if we're talking about MTUM, which is very different from USMV. MTUM is a momentum strategy, right? And one of the challenges with momentum strategies is when you have a momentum crash, that's awful violent. These strategies, if they're unconstrained, completely unconstrained, you end up loading up in whatever single single factor or two are driving the market at that time. So you might be 60, 70% technology or real heavy in biotech, and that looks great for a couple of quarters. And if that turns against you, it blows up, right? And so we liked MTUM because it takes those momentum names, but inversely weights them relative to volatility. So it ends up with a smoother ride over time. You're still capturing that momentum factor, but it's a much smoother ride than some of the other things that are completely unconstrained. Understood. And then what about rebalancing? Because momentum, MTUM sometimes will notice that it rebalances a little oddly around a, uh, something that changed in the market. Yeah. Um, I think over the long run, it's trying to capture it. But how important is the rebalancing frequency? I think most are quarterly, but some are semi-annually, some are annually. How important is that for you when you select one? And it sounds like you maybe even do monthly. Well, for us, it depends on the strategy that we're trying to capture, right? So we're always looking at our portfolios and what, what's coming out. And then you have the, the ETFs rebalance. And some of them, it's not as important if they're more sort of like like some of the dividend-oriented ones we, we talked about that are just kind of – or you know, DGRO where you're just trying to capture a right. good dividend grower. That thing doesn't need to be rebalanced all that often. But you have something like momentum that needs to be rebalanced more frequently. So that MTUM gets rebalanced twice a year, and then they have these ad hoc rebalances. And that is very important to us because um, – You like the ad hoc rebalances. 
Well, we think it's important to acknowledge that the market's changing and that the ETF has to change with it when you're looking at a momentum thing. But it's also important if we're looking at portfolio construction that we have to re- then dig under the hood again to look at our our allocations overall and how that rebalancing affects our positioning. Right. Because you don't want to end up with, with your thesis. Exactly. And you don't want to end up with an unintended bet somewhere. I mean, it's hard enough to be a successful investor. And then when you have unintended bets because you weren't paying attention to the rebalancing of one of your bigger holdings, that's problematic. Right. Yeah. So what about like a like a smart beta offering? Like how much of that do you have in your portfolio right now? We do a fair amount in the smart beta world, so it depends on how you define it. But some people will say momentum is a, a smart beta ETF. We also have some multi-factor stuff, um, and USMV and those those types of things. And really, you have VTV, which is the Vanguard value, right? Which would I don't know barely be smart beta. I mean, this is mm-hmm. VTV is as close to beta as you could possibly get a, with a value fund, right? Which right. That's intriguing to me. Normally, I'd picture an advisor putting grandma in this because they would never get fired because it will always be around the S&P. But you, I would, I would think you'd go to something a little more exotic, but, but you like it. We do like it because it's a long-term core holding for us. It, it allows us to maintain a long-term value bias, and we have, a, we have a tilt towards value anyway. And some of these things that are more exotic or more pure play uh, value are going to work really good when their time is right. And then when their time is not right, they're not working at all. And so we like the v, the VTV is a long term core holding for us. We've owned that thing for for forever and have a very low cost basis in it. Um, but so for example, if the economy is to accelerate, like maybe we're coming out of a recession and and things are starting to turn, that's when you want that pure beta or, or pure play value style. And when if that's our thesis, we will move into that. But that's not our thesis right now. Yeah. Um, and Joel, I have one for you. Um, this is one that uh, Tom from our team actually wanted to bring up, which is AOK. Sir Vegas. Tom Serafagus, yeah. Um, you, you know, you always ask about, why isn't there an ETF that just does everything? Yeah, yeah. totally. That's what AOK does. It's a con- it's an- AOK is a kind of a great ticker name, <laughs> got to say. So it's a conservative, a core conservative allocation. It's an asset allocation ETF. So it holds basically like seven other ETFs that track bonds, stocks, small caps, mid caps. So in a way, it's the sort meta of like a ETF. full- Yeah, the yeah. meta ETF. Mm-hmm. Aren't you the asset allocator? So why would you own an asset allocation ETF? For that one in particular, we own that for a particular investor who's rather limited in what we can own. And so it, it fills us a, a spot for us where in our full-blown ETFs uh, strategies, we actually don't own it. We do own some other asset allocation ETFs um, that are a little more esoteric, mm-hmm. um, things like MDIV and iYield. Let's talk about MDIV real quick because this is a multi-asset income ETF, which sounds you know boring and convoluted. But really, it's, the way I would phrase it is it's like um, all of the above for yield. Goes into junk bonds, uh, you know, uh, dividend stocks, you know, everything that has like a nice yield. It kind of just does it all in one shot, and you like that. We do like that one. That one's got a little more uh, zing to it, a little more beta to it, because it picks up things like um, MLPs and the like. And so it's got a it's got a healthy yield of about six percent. So we look at this as something that can capture our forecast for equity returns, for example, going forward is about seven percent total rate of return. MDIV gives us about six percent of that just out of yield. And uh, now it's, it's going to have some volatility to it. We think it'll get us probably about 70% of the risk of the market, but it's capturing something like 80 90% of the potential return of the market. Mm-hmm. So we like that. And it's got a relatively low correlation. It's about a 0.8 correlation to the broad equity market. So it gives diversification benefit. Why do you think an AOK-type ETF, or an MDiv, frankly, but a, let's stick with AOK, why aren't these <clears> more <throat> popular? Is it because advisors, they kind of disintermediate a, la- a layer there? Because Joel wonders this all the time, like, and Rick Ferry, um, who's a, an advisor himself, thinks there's a market that hasn't been tapped yet for these. But I'm like, they're out there, and they don't have much money. I, my yeah. thesis actually 
is that everyone has somebody in the middle. So that stuff doesn't quite get picked up because you're going to put me in other things. Yeah, that could be. Um, and maybe it's just uh, people make look like it's too easy, right? Why would you pick one ETF that does all this stuff? But to us, we really like that because that right. covers a lot of ground for us. Because I don't want to own 2% positions in MLPs and 2% positions in this and that. I can own one broad ETF that I know it's going to do. It's going to cover that ground for us and get us that, that consistent return with less risk. Uh, with one ticker symbol. So that makes a lot of sense. And then we could build around that, give us room to do things like Q-Tech and IHI when we right. own, a, when right. own it. So how often do you have, you mentioned this is one particular investor that you basically built a separate strategy for. How often do you do something like that? Very rarely. They're a big investor for us, an important investor for us. So somebody comes knocking on the door like that, you're going to take it. Yeah. <laughs> and say, A-OK. <laughs> uh, so I'm noticing, though, that it seems like you're long only. Are you short anything? Because that would be reveal, you know, the long only stuff is what's going to come out in the 13F. But do you have shorts? We don't have shorts. We do use from time to time ETFs that do long short within them. Yeah. But our broad clientele really don't want us to do anything inverse. Yeah. And so what about other exotic stuff that Eric would put on his red light system? Do, you don't like, do leverage, right? We do not do leverage. And do you do any commodities that hold futures? We can. We haven't lately. Yeah. Um, we just don't think it's a the time is right to own those. Do you do you own senior loans or junk bonds? We do not. We have in the past. We don't have. Wow, you're PG and G. Yeah, it's like yeah. green he's, he's, with a little yeah. yellow. Yeah. He's uh, he's he sticks to the family movies. Yeah. Well, for um, now, we have owned, for example, <laughs> for now. <laughs> it's not Friday night yet. So, well, let's ask about his personal account. <laughs> <laughs> we have owned uh, high yield in the past. Uh, last time we owned high yield in a big way was uh, in 2014 when we our work suggested that uh, the price of oil is vulnerable and high yield that market is something like 30 percent energy related. So we didn't want to own that going into it, and we still. Think that sector is vulnerable, so we're not going to own it now. And we think where short-term interest rates are now, we're not getting compensated very well for taking uh, the senior loan risk. But we did years ago when the Fed just started hiking interest rates. The market priced in a twenty percent probability that the Fed was going to continue to do that. We thought it was a lock, so we wanted to use that variable rate, that floating rate on the short end of the curve. We did pretty well with it at that time. You know, you you said something interesting that I'm, I'm interested about. Do you eat your own cooking? Yes. Everything I own, our clients own. In fact, I'm just investing in the same portfolio as our clients are invested in. Yeah. So now we're, we're going to ask you about an idea that, that we're kind of intrigued with and see what you think uh, as the master user here. One thing I'm just – I can't help but be super intrigued about is uranium miners because you know nuclear power, according to Bill Gates and a lot of people starting to read more about this, if you want to fight climate change but yet you want economic growth and nobody wants to like stop moving around, you kind of need something to help out wind and solar, right? So nuclear is a clean, cheap, 24-7 method. And I, I get that it has to get over this public relations hurdle. But a new ETF came out, URNM, mm -hmm. and there's also URA, after an 80% downturn in the market over the past eight years. And I've never seen an ETF come out with a backtest, quote unquote, that bad. <laughs> the whole thing made me intrigued in that, A, um, here's a, a, a story and B, it's been beaten up so much that the smallest little catalyst seems like it could be massive upside. Thoughts? So that's a very specific and particular idea. And if we think about our client base being individuals and families. Not um, that nerdy. <laughs> right. Right. And, and if we do that, so let's say we go ahead and invest in that. And it works great. You know, that's what they expect of us. But if it doesn't work, 
now I've got something. Well, why did you put me in what? Why am I in uranium? Right. And so for us, that's such a, a, a specific particular thing. And how much of that would you really own in a portfolio? Is it really going to add that much to the contribution to the overall return of a strategy? Um, for us, when we think about all those kinds of things, it's going to be so specific. It's an interesting academic exercise. Uh, but it's hard to say, hey, I want to own 10% of your portfolio and I rate your rating. Okay, so here's a, a different one. And we, we did a uh, sort of a game show last spring where we had a bunch of people pitch an idea that we think would make for a good ETF or that person would think for a good ETF. The one that I'm actually interested in is millennials, right? Like here's a gigantic generation, bigger than the boomers. Mm -hmm. So if you believe that's part of the thesis, these are going to be massive consumers. Mm -hmm. Will you... That seems like a long-term play that you could get into. How would you approach something like that? We actually did approach uh, the millennial generation a couple of years ago when we thought about – I remember uh, during the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009, the whole story was you know, these people are graduating college and they can't find jobs, right? So they had the boomerang generation, moving, people moving back into their parents' basement. Well, that was 10 years ago. So now you're 30 years old living in mom's basement, right? And so you're not going to keep doing that. So we thought, okay, they don't have money to buy homes, so what's the next best thing? Apartments. Multifamily housing. So we picked up on uh, REZ, which is a mortgage REIT that's heavily invested in that. And that did Rez. fairly well for us that way. There you go. You know, the millennials also, that uh, ETF sounds gimmicky, but when you think about it, I think every company there has to have 50% of its revenue from millennials. And you know how tech savvy and, and picky they are. I think if you can serve them, you know, uh, you probably are going to eventually bring over other people from other demographics. That's and it has done pretty well, although mm -hmm. the problem with comparing a millennial ETF, it beat the S&P over many periods, but then you throw in the Russell growth and it doesn't outperform that. Like that's a tough part about some of these themes. If you if, if you slap on the growth index, almost nothing beats it. It's like, well, what's the point anyway? That's exactly right. Yeah. So when you actually dig in and do that kind of work, you're like, all right, you got this cute theme, or I can do it using the broad growth and get it for like five basis points and be right. done. Right. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to kick the tires on this a, a little bit more because you know we've we've got to interview Jack Bogle, buy and hold guy, kind of anti ETFs. You're almost exact opposite. We're we're very you know 100% ETFs, and we're trading not constantly but frequently, right? And using you know uh, theses to sort of inform how how your performance might mm -hmm. be able to beat the market, right? What do you have to say to, you know, the large swath of the world who just is a buy and hold investor? Well, a, and maybe using yeah. ETF still. Right. So, a Bogle's been a great inspiration for us over the years. In a couple of things that he said, like for example, he talks about how most of the marketing stuff we we see out there is bogus, right? It's all malarkey. A lot of it is. And we actually agree with that. A lot of the stuff that he's he's talked about and he's inspired us to be a little more cynical the way that we, we look at the world and not necessarily accept what you might the researchers might might give you now the challenge with being a buy and hold investor only is that people don't actually do that if you look at the average mm. holding time for a mutual fund over the years it's something like 18 months mm. because markets are volatile and mm -hmm. people get scared mm -hmm. and they end up bailing at the wrong time so a lot of our tactical work is to act as behavior relief valve mm -hmm. to help our investors stay the course mm -hmm. so i appreciate mr bogle's viewpoints on uh, how there's a lot of marketing bs out there and i, I get that I, I think that's right um but we've demonstrated over more than a decade that we can perform as good as a market while taking less risk and help people stay the course so speaking of which over that decade what's performance been like uh, for our our core three portfolios that we launched, um, actually in September 2018, oh, I'm sorry, 2008 is when that track record starts. Each of those strategies has outperformed their respective benchmarks while taking between 10 and 20 percent less risk. 
And that's the key. If you can smooth the ride for people and help folks, um, especially in down periods. You know, uh, Richard Thaler won the Nobel Prize for his work on behavioral economics. And one of his key thesis is that downside volatility affects people at least twice as much of a euphoria of a gain. So protecting in the downside is at least is worth at least twice as much as being able to outperform on the upside, right? So if we can protect on the downside, that's what helps people stay the course and achieve those long-term results. While the buy and hold thing works great in a classroom in academia, in a real world, people don't do that. And on the flip side to Bogle's complaints, there's the hedge fund guy complaint, I call it, mm-hmm. which is Oh, ETFs are going to blow up. There's systemic risk. Passive makes everything dumb. They're distorting fundamentals. You've heard them all. They're, you are a user of these. Does any of that affect you? Is any of it true? Um, you know, as somebody who's actually putting other people's money in it, what do you think when you hear that? There are narrow parts of the market where you can get trapped holding an ETF. You might remember the junior gold miners a couple of years ago got mm-hmm. locked up. Mm-hmm. But how big is that market? You know, the ETF is going to dominate that market. So, but the broader-based ETFs, that's not an issue. And in fact, it, it's just another market participant. You always have buyers and sellers participating in the market. And uh, if you look at it, take it a step back, it, the market is driven by the large institutions and the big mutual funds that together combine make the market. So just one more entrant isn't, broadly speaking, isn't going to be that impactful. So at $4 trillion, roughly, the ETF landscape, and it's got a a pretty big uh, uh, parabolic growth rate, but mutual funds are still right around $30 trillion, and the global liquidity is around $300 trillion. So what are we talking about? We're talking about marginal stuff, and anytime something locks up like junior gold miners, it hits the press and everybody gets excited about it. But SPY doesn't have that problem. The big broader things that we invest in don't have that problem. Yeah, we call it uh, the big fish in the small pond phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Every now and then, like an XIV, something just gets a little bit bigger than the issuer thought it would, and it owns a little too much of the stocks. SDY, that uh, dividend mm-hmm. aristocrat one, recently had it. But largely, I would agree with you. I think sometimes uh, you cannot perform. So, I don't know. It sounds like sour grapes to me. But 2018 also, I think, showed uh, the sell-off was pretty violent in some parts of 2018. The Fed wasn't having the markets back, and they seem to work fine. We saw it in 2008, too, which is the biggest crisis any of us ever seen since the Great Depression, and they held up just fine. What are we not talking about that we should be talking about right now? With ETFs? Yeah. Or, or okay. just in your investing philosophy. So um, there are some risks out there that we're paying a lot of attention to. And uh, you mentioned the Fed didn't really have the, the, the markets back in, in December 2018. Um, we're a little bit concerned that the Fed is a little bit asleep at the wheel right now. We'd like to see them cut interest rates further because we can't forget that the, the yield curve inverted last year, and that's a one to two year lead time. So we're still in that cautionary window. Um, so the market's at all time highs. There's a lot of risk out there, and we think uncertainty is doing nothing but increasing for the near term. And so ETFs are actually a great way to, to uh, be able to participate in the upside while managing that risk, and you can quickly pair back, which mm-hmm. is uh, what we're expecting. Do you have a Bernie Sanders ETF just in case? <laughs> Just in case he starts to climb the poles and whatnot, are you, what are you yeah. going to go to? GLD? Uh, actually, no. If 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 the market gives us an opportunity, like the market pulls back because of a Bernie Sanders election, we would buy that. We would buy just basic beta because our work shows that who's in a White House really doesn't have a broad effect on the global uh, on the economy, and then therefore the markets. Now, certainly, it can affect individual sectors and industries. So you probably don't want to be in the energy space in a big way under mm-hmm. a Bernie Sanders kind of environment. Um, but everything else looks just fine to us. Okay, I can't think of a better person to ask my closing question to, which is, what is your favorite ticker? Oh, that's probably wood. Oh, interesting. Inspired mm. choice. Yeah. Which, by the way, is the timber ETF, and there's another one called cut, which is a, an, it's right up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he goes wood. Why wood? 
Uh, hey, you, you know what it is, yeah. right? It's like, <laughs> even tan, you have to think about it for a second. What does that mean? Well, wood, I'm buying wood. I'm buying the timber. <laughs> All right. Gary, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Gary at Asset Stringer. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.